Mastermind Agent is proud to present the Interview of the Month Club. Top agents, rising agents, team members, and guests from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the club interviews at www.mastermindagent.com. Hi, I'm Mike Cerrone with Mastermind Agent. This month's top agent is Corinne Wynn with Real Estate in Goodyear, Arizona. She works the West Valley of Metro Phoenix. As of August 8, 2011, this year, she closed 536 transactions with a total sales volume of $48 million. Her average sales price was $89,000. 9% were buyers and 91% were sellers. She operates a team with 14 members, two transaction managers, two transaction coordinators, two MLS data entry, one HOA utility, one bookkeeper, one accounts payable, four field reps, and one team leader. She also utilizes her company's 29 agents to assist with buyers. Corinne Wynn is the team leader of real estate. She has been an agent for eight years. Corinne sells REO properties. In the last few years, Corinne narrowed her focus to listing homes for the government trifecta, HUD, Fannie Mae, and Freddie Mac. The REO market is full of opportunity and challenges. Corinne's production has varied radically over the last few years. In 2009, she closed 387 homes. In 2010, she closed 98 homes. In 2011, as of August 8th, she has already closed 536 homes and hopes to hit 1,000 closings. Corinne is smart, ambitious, flexible, and driven. She exudes confidence and charisma. Corinne is not afraid to pick up the phone or fly around the country to establish and maintain relationships with banks and asset managers. She is a risk taker. In early 2010, Corinne saw an opportunity to get into government homes, but her brokerage was hesitant. Not wanting to miss an opportunity, she acted fast. Corinne switched gears and opened her own brokerage to take advantage of a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. She then beat out 2,500 other agents to gain a lucrative HUD contract. Corinne will describe how she got into the REO, HUD, Fannie Mae, and Freddie Mac markets. Listen closely as she describes the advantages and disadvantages of each. First, a quick word from our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television. Need more referrals? Get a free script and simple three-part plan used by a top agent to receive and close 74 referral transactions in one year. Just go to freereferralscript.com. That's freereferralscript.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome to the call, Corinne. Thank you for having me. Before we get into what you're doing today, let's go back for a minute and talk about what you did before you got into real estate. What I did before real estate, I'm going to go back two positions because I think it really brings me to the point of where I am today. It's those skills that I learned in that position help me on a daily basis. Um, and that first real job was being a manager at Wells Fargo Bank. Uh, that helped me manage people. And there at the bank, I did fairly well with home equity sales. And I think most people don't realize banking is actually a very sales-driven job. So I did very well at Wells Fargo. Uh, I had a lot of people approach me at the bank and say that I needed to do mortgage because I was doing so well with home equity. 
I was making a great profit for the bank, but the profit for myself is still base salary with some bonuses. I want a cruise. I got some other perks, but not direct monetary compensation. So eventually I, I took that advice and I left the bank to become a loan officer in 2001. And I stayed in that position for a few years, but during that time I quickly realized that real estate seemed to be the more fun position. Uh, the pay there was more than it was in the loan officer position. And it seemed that the clients always had a better relationship, stronger lasting relationships with the real estate agents versus the paper pusher loan officer. So in 2003, I got my real estate license. And for, I would say, 12 to 18 months, I did both loans and real estate in an attempt to service clients best. I thought I wouldn't have extra people that I would need to deal with. And soon after that, I realized it was very difficult to master both jobs because there's just so much, and things started changing drastically in the industry to master both of them. So I pushed the loan officer position out altogether and went full-time real estate and never looked back since. What year was that? When I became full-time agent, no more loans in 2000, beginning of 2005. When you went full-time, do you think that you had a fast start or a slow start? I had a very fast start because I used the book of business that I had in loans as past clients, treated them as past clients, and just rolled that right into my real estate business. Where is Goodyear, Arizona? Goodyear is a suburb that's southwest of Metro Phoenix area, or it really is in the Metro Phoenix area, but it's southwest of Phoenix itself. Could you describe your current real estate market? Sure. We've seen somewhat of an increase, I would say, over the last 12 months because we do have a shortage of inventory. Um, our average sales price last year was 127000 but it has gone down to 90000 Those numbers don't reflect Goodyear's average sales price. That's my average sales price as an agent, and I think because having a higher volume and some of my areas being spread out a little bit further to some more rural areas, my average sales price has dropped, but overall the average sales price in Metro Phoenix and the Goodyear area is flat, but a slight increase. How about your days on the market? Days on the market right now averages uh, about 40 days. Wow, that's pretty quick. Yeah, it is very quick. And actually in the southwest portion of Metro Phoenix, which is where we are, that has the lowest uh, inventory in the Metro Phoenix area. So things do move pretty quickly. We see a lot of multiple offers on properties because prices are so low and interest rates are, are probably just as good as they get. That sounds like a turning in the market. Yes, it could be. We maybe look back on this time and say that's exactly what we're experiencing. In your market, are most of the homes retail with normal homeowners or are they REO and short sale? We have a very high percentage of REO and short sell. Uh, Goodyear has some small pockets where there are some older homes built in 60s, 70s. Uh, so we do have some equity sales there, but on the whole, over 75% of the sales in this area are REO or short sell. Do you have a niche or a specialization in that market? Absolutely. Uh, prior to the market 
changing drastically. We had a big peak and then a lot of increased REO properties. I did very well on the listing side, but I quickly saw the writing on the wall that the market was shifting. So I began doing BPOs and looking more towards that REO segment and quickly got my feet in the right doors and really um, focused mostly on REO at this time. You said that you made the transition. When did you see the market turning? The market for us started to shift really in 2000, late 2007, early 2008. You can probably look back and see it a little before then as well. Um, but for me, I really made that shift in late 2007, early 2008. You decided that you would start working with banks, and your approach was to start doing BPOs? Yes, yes. I was always very strong at prospecting to get listing appointments in traditional sales and retail. So for me, that was an easy thing to do, to pick up the phone and just prospect to these banks. And the BPO is really your resume that you are qualified to sell the properties. You're capable of valuing them correctly. You just start calling up banks directly. How did you put together that list? Really, I used Google. Uh, I also went to Active Rain, and I utilized a lot of data that I, anything I could get my hands on, really, from people posting on blogs and their experiences. And once I had my sights on a particular bank or asset manager, I would do anything I could to get direct contact information for them by using the Internet. And I also had some good success using LinkedIn. And with that, I would call those companies uh, very confidently, like they were expecting my call, so I would actually get in front of them. And it had a very good pitch for my few seconds of them listening in order to get you know, feet in the door, really. To get your foot in the door, you would offer to do a BPO for them? Yes. I was very cautious because there was a lot of postings on the Internet about companies asking for free BPOs, which means they want you to do quite a bit of work and not compensate you anything for it in hopes that they will give you the listing. And so I was very careful about doing that, but I did that and made some good decisions and in turn got some listings as a result. Are you currently working the REO market? Yes, I work REO and HUD primarily. How many banks or asset managers are you currently working with? Right now I have about 10 different banks that I'm working with. Some produce more inventory from me than others. Um, I have what's called, I call it the trifecta because I have the government entities which are Fannie, Freddie, and HUD. And those seem to have the largest inventory, so those keep us very busy. Is that where the majority of your business is coming from, the government trifecta? Yes, absolutely. Of your overall business, what percentage do you think is coming from that government trifecta? From the government trifecta, I would say probably 98% of my business. But you didn't start there. You started working with local banks or large banks and then moved your, yourself into the government arena? Correct, correct. I started with a small bank out of Florida, actually, Bank United. And they didn't have really, they had an REO department, but they didn't really have processes and procedures in place. So that was very nice for me because I was able to collaborate with the asset managers as we went along on how we would do things because REO at that volume was a, a new thing for most banks, especially some smaller banks. But Bank United had a lot of subprime loans that they had made. 
so they had a pretty good sized portfolio and I was one of their top agents in the Metro Phoenix area. So that's how I got my foot in the door and then I used that name and inventory on my resume to quickly go after several other banks and REO accounts. How did you make the transition from a private bank to the government, the Fannie, Freddie, and HUD? Who did you go after first? I went after Fannie Mae first because for me that in talking with other REO agents and just seeing the inventory in our MLS, that seemed to have the largest inventory of the three. And really where I am with my bank clients today are completely different clients than I had you know, even two or three years ago. I quickly learned not to have all of your eggs in one basket in this business because there's a lot of banks, like Bank United is no longer doing REO. They process it through a completely different company and several other banks have folded. So it's very important so that you don't go out of business yourself when you have such a high percentage of business in REO that you diversify and not keep all those eggs in one basket. So I went after Fannie Mae. Um, I got a contact name and continuously just kept touching base. Very carefully, you can't contact too often because then you'll be a bother to the asset manager or to your contact, but just lightly touching that person. And when you touch them at the right time, there seems to always be some opportunity as long as you, you get there at the right time. How did you make sure you got there at the right time? How often would you contact them and what method would you use? I would uh, vary between phone calls, uh, snail mail, so I would mail note cards, or email. Email for an asset manager or REO contact is usually number one because they have a lot of assets that they're managing and a very heavy workload. So they appreciate that type of quick contact versus phone. However, they are inundated with that type of contact. So sometimes it's nice just to change that up just a bit, keep your name fresh in front of them, but in different ways. So I would, call, I would send an email uh, once a month. I would call offset also once a month. but So they were getting some type of contact from me every two weeks. And eventually that I, got, I got the opportunity where they asked me to actually submit in all my application and they would review it. And quickly after that I was received in and received, started, began receiving assets. Let's try to break down that process. You identified Fannie Mae. You decided you want to go after them. Did you say you signed up to be on their list initially, or was that later? Once you get the invitation, so to speak, to sign up, that's not really a guarantee that you're going to get in. But since I was invited by an asset manager, she was willing to use me as soon as my entire setup process was complete. With what Fannie Mae is not an overnight process. There's a little bit of time that goes into that. Uh, simultaneously, I actually opened my own brokerage. So with the government entities, your account is with your brokerage, not with the agent, like it is with some of the other banks. The agent holds the account and the relationship. With the government entities, the account and relationship is with the broker, not the agent. And at that time, I wasn't the broker. So uh, I was getting a little bit of pushback from my previous brokerage on some of the transactions because I was doing such a heavy load of transactions they weren't making a great profit off of me to process quite a bit of paperwork. So the writing was on the wall for me. It seemed like a great time, a great opportunity, and I went ahead and opened my own brokerage. 
So at the time that Fannie Mae invited me to come over, uh, I opened the brokerage very quickly so that I could open those accounts under the new brokerage. From the moment that you started thinking about going after Fannie Mae and started working that to the moment you got your first assignment, how much time elapsed? From when I signed up or submitted the initial application, it probably was 60 days before I got that first assignment. It may have even been a little longer, 60 to 90 days, but that was in part because of my transfer. And opening a brokerage is not a – I already had a broker's license, however – you need to form your LLC and do some several other things with the state. So that was part of the delay in getting that initial assignment with them. How long do you think that you prospected that asset manager before you received your invitation? Easily over a year, probably 12 to 16 months, somewhere in there. So you worked on that for quite a while. Yes. 12 to 16 months to get in with the asset manager. You got your invitation another 60 days. So we're talking a year and a half. Right. All in all, it was about a year and a half before I got that first assignment. Then you started working with Fannie Mae. Now, did that start, uh, did, was it a quick start? Did they start giving you a lot of assignments quickly or was it a slower start where it kind of trickled and they tested you? They start you off slow. So I started off with uh, five to 10 assignments. And after, they want to gear. They want to, they want to gauge and see what type of agent you are, how knowledgeable are you, do you really know the REO market and procedures. And so after those first five to ten assignments, they realized that I did have a good grasp on what was happening in our market and quickly opened up uh, where I had over 80 assignments with them. So after that, it was fast and furious. I know you have a team, and we'll talk about the details of your team later, but did you have to have a team or group of people standing behind you before you could get that first Fannie Mae assignment? I don't know that that's a prerequisite. I know for billing or bookkeeping, that probably was very important to them because that is such a monstrous piece of the REO process, uh, which I did have in place. As far as an additional team, when I started with them, I had a very, very small team and grew as needed. So I don't feel that it was a requirement to have a large team to get going as, as long as you had that bookkeeper in place. You got going with Fannie Mae. Who did you add next as far as the government trifecta? Next on my list was Freddie Mac. And Freddie Mac is a great account for me in the fact that they do an annual roadshow where they go to different markets and they have higher ranking decision making folks from Freddie Mac that come out and talk to the buyer's agents and they're very diligent to say they are there to talk to you about how to sell Freddie Mac properties it's called the Home Steps Roadshow and I attended one the year previous so before I got into Fannie Mae and I wasn't able to get a good foot in front of the decision makers at that roadshow so the next time that they came into town, which was a year later, just shortly after I got the Fannie Mae account, I was more of a voice on the listing side because there was a lot of there's a lot of animosity between buyers agents and REO agents. And so I was just trying to explain, well here, let's look at this side of the coin and this is what we see and you know, let's not make it an adversarial relationship between the two. And I spoke that way in front of the group and I think that was a good impression on the decision makers for Freddie Mac. And so one of the regional, regional managers actually approached me after that meeting 
and got my contact information. And within three days, I was contacted by Freddie Mac to fill out an application, which was right at the same time I was opening my brokerage. So again, a little bit of a delayed process there because brokerage wasn't open, and I didn't want to open it under the old. But uh, within 60 days, pretty much right when I opened the, the brokerage, I had both of those accounts starting at the same time. So the Freddie Mac process was a little quicker getting into it because you'd already established the Fannie Mae. Correct. How did you get into the HUD properties? HUD properties, actually there was some buzz around town that HUD was changing their M&M contract and the way that they were handling the listing portion. In years past, HUD had paid only a $250 flat fee to the listing agent or listing broker for each listing and a higher 3 to 5% commission for the buyer's agents. Well, under this new contract, they were hiring new asset management companies and paying a higher commission on the listing portion or on the listing side because they wanted the listing agents to do or they want the listing agents to do a lot more marketing, spend a lot more in marketing, which with a $250 flat fee per listing doesn't enable you to do much in marketing doesn't cover a lot of costs. So when, we, when I heard that buzz, I quickly started researching the asset management company that would cover here in Phoenix and sent in my resume, went online, applied, got a marketing packet together, and they did some preliminary interviews and I was invited to that group of interviews. I was contacted via email by the owners. Um, and from there, I went out and did an interview I got to do my interview personally with one of the co-owners or owner of the company and hit it off very well with them. Had a great marketing package that I put together and within 30 days I was notified that I would be one of the HUD brokers for the Metro Phoenix area. And you mentioned one of them. How many brokers do they have there working in Metro Phoenix? In the Metro Phoenix area, there's 12 to 14 of us. Uh, there's a little bit more scattered out for some of the other parts of Arizona, but there's just a concentrated in Metro Phoenix area, more like 12 to 14. Do you get a certain geographic area or all the assignments just given out randomly? No, I do get a geographical area. So I am concentrated in the West Valley, so the West Corridor of Metro Phoenix, which that ranges if you go down south to Levine and then just travel all the way north up to Surprise and Peoria, I cover those areas and all in between there. How big of an area is that? How many miles or you know, how long does it take you to drive to the ends of it? I'm not really a center point. I'm a little bit south of the entire area. I'm more on the southern portion of it. So we could travel 40 or 50 miles one way because I do border more of a rural area, depending if we get an assignment out there. Uh, for the most part, everything is is closer though, so within 10 or 15 miles. The majority of the properties are within 10 or 15 miles of our office. Currently, of the three government entities, which one do you do the most business with? HUD by far. Give us a basic idea by breaking down the percentages. Is HUD 50%, 60%? HUD is more about, I would guess, more like 70% of my entire business. The HUD contract started at the end of October of last year, and year-to-date I've received a little over 500 properties 
from HUD. Not sold, but just received assignments. Sold about 380. So that represents about 70% of my business. Which one would be next, Fannie or Freddie? Fannie Mae would be next. And what percentage do you think that they represent currently? Uh, Fannie is about 25% of the business. And then Freddie uh, is, uh, with, I have a lower inventory with Freddie, so probably about 4%, and then the remaining are with the Bank of America and some of the other smaller accounts that I have. Since HUD is such a, a large portion of your business, and people probably want to know a lot about that, let's dig into that. You mentioned you got a contract back in October. How long does that contract last for? The contract was through May 31st, and then we renewed the contract at that time. So at this point, they're rolling them in six-month increments, but just like any other REO account, that asset manager or asset management company has the right to terminate you really at any time. So the contract itself is set for six months, though. Wow, so they have you on a short lease. Yes. Yes, they want to see people. This is a very coveted account to have, so they want to see the best of the best. You have to constantly be performing. You have to excel at what you're doing, or they will move on. The last I heard, there was over 2,500 applications in for that position. So there's always someone on your heels, yeah, constantly on your toes. Why do you think that you won the contract over those other 2,500 applicants? I am very personable. So I'm personable, no nonsense, and I've made good business decisions and I continue to make good business decisions. And I think when you sit down with someone, even in a five-minute conversation, you can quickly gather that this person really has a grasp on what they're doing. And I'm extremely competitive. So I always want to be number one. I always want to have the lowest days on the market. I always want to sell the most properties. And that's a driver for me. That helps push me, I think, to the front of the pack as far as other people can see that. That's no secret. I make no secret about that. And that's my driving force every day. Let's break down this HUD concept. What do you expect it to do? You said they changed their program and dramatically changed what the tasks are for the listing agent. And I also assume compensation, which we'll ask in a minute. But let's talk about tasks. What do you expect it to do? As the listing broker, we have to go out and perform an initial inspection. This looks much different than it does for a Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac because we're not the first person on site. We don't have to do an occupancy check. We never find a property, a HUD property occupied. So we don't deal with any of that part of the process. That's handled by the FSM, which is the field service company. And when we get the, the property, it's basically going out just to do our initial assessment. We have to take front photos, back photos, some additional photos uh, at that initial inspection, and then we submit the condition to the asset management company. And when I say condition, it's more of we're not doing an inspection like a home inspector. We're just inspecting to confirm that the windows are secured, there's no safety hazards, things of that sort. Once we complete that inspection, they will send the appraiser out to get the value on the property. Once the appraiser goes out and his job is done, they'll send us back out as a listing broker to confirm that the property is still secure, nothing's changed, and that we're okay to list the property. And very shortly after, they go ahead and list it. At that point, we do the traditional things, so list it, take marketing photos, 
the big piece for this contract is different is that they actually monitor very closely what we're doing for marketing, whereas that might help you get your foot in the door with another entity, Fannie Freddie, or even any other REO account. There's not a lot of follow-up after the fact. Here with HUD, not the case. You have to constantly show your marketing. So you have to provide samples on a monthly report, and they want to see your marketing dollars. What are your marketing efforts? There's no shortcutting here. You have to be very strong with your marketing. So there's a lot of money that gets put out for marketing. And then we're also required as the HUD brokers to perform HUD outreach events. So HUD was very popular oh, 8 to 10 years ago, but we saw a lot of the HUD properties die off. Inventory was low over the last several years. So now that it's picking back up, we have a lot of agents that have never experienced a HUD transaction. It's quite different than another transaction. There's some quirks about it and some specifics that you need to know. So we do do very regular outreach events as the agents where we're teaching and training lenders, buyers, and agents. Are you teaching them by giving them out information? Are you putting on seminars? More of a seminar structure. Uh, if it's for a buyer, we call it a buyer seminar. For lenders and agents, we call it more of a training, training class, if you will. Uh, some of the agents and brokers have even certified themselves, so there's CE credit involved on some of their classes. But the class is it's pretty extensive. So it's a two to three hour class. They're held throughout the valley. Uh, for mine, I have a very good sized training room here at my office, so I alter between my office and one of the local associations, one of their training rooms for the boards. Uh, and very shortly here we're holding one at a hotel. So we try to change them out throughout the valley so that we make sure everyone is getting an opportunity to go with no excuses that it's too far, not a convenient place or time. So there are quite a few different events being offered for the agents. How often are you putting on that training for the agents? We're doing them at least once, once a month. When the new M&M contract rolled out, we were doing them more often. I would personally do two or three per month. But now that we are getting a lot more of the agent population educated, we're seeing not as many people attend the event, so there's not been really a need to do them more often than once a month as long as you do them on a bigger scale when you do that event. Did you say you're also putting on classes for the general public for buyers? Yes, yes. We are holding buyer seminars. Those I've had here at my office, it's harder to get the public aware of those events and get a good turnout for those, but we did recently hold a buyer event. We had 15 people that came to the class. They all had really great feedback on it. And then we had a tour of two HUD homes after the event so they could get an idea of exactly what these properties look like. Right? It's not a shack. There's some very nice houses that you can get, that you can buy for a very low price per square foot. And so we thought it was important to showcase those after the event as well. So we did a caravan to two properties. Are these buyers that are coming into these meetings, are they connected with an agent? Were they sent by an agent? Or are they typically unrepresented? No, for these events, they are typically unrepresented. We are planning one here very soon again where it's going to be more on a grander scale where we have collaboration between several of the HUD listing brokers. But for that last event, we did two forms of marketing that were really the driver for that. One is we had a newspaper ad which probably had the greatest response from that. But we also, every time we had someone call in on a property on our lead line, we informed them about the event. So that was a great way because we get a good source of leads 
and we got a good percentage of showings from that as well. Does HUD have any prohibition against you trying to pick those buyers up and work with them to purchase one of the HUD properties? No, absolutely not. They actually are the opposite. They would love for us to, whatever we need to do to get a lower average time on the market for these properties, if that means, that's part of the marketing dollar effort. We're paying out the money. Hopefully we're getting some reciprocation and getting those phone calls from those buyers, email leads, whatever they may be, so that we can push these buyers to purchase HUD properties over the others. Are you now part of the bidding process, the purchasing process, or is that happening online with HUD? No, the bidding process is online. HUD has their own website, hudhomestore.com, and so we call that the HUD MLS. Everything goes through that website as far as the bidding process is concerned. I don't have access to see anything as a listing broker as far as how many bids are in, what bids were accepted, declined, etc. So all of that is handled on the back end with the asset manager and we're notified once they actually select a bid for us to put it pending in the MLS. Are you part of the process after that? Are you part of the inspection or the closing? Once the property is put under contract, we are the liaison, I guess if you will, between the agent, buyer's agent, and buyer and lender to make sure that everyone at that point on has a good understanding of some of the specifics that happen with a HUD transaction that are different than another transaction. And we are in constant communication with that agent via email and phone to make sure that the closing process is going well. Lender doesn't have any questions. Lender doesn't have any issues, so to speak, because there are some things that come up uh, with most of our buyers are FHA buyers. And since HUD is FHA, there's several specifics that many agents and lenders don't realize that are special, really, and advantages for buyers that are using FHA. So a lot of times that's an education process throughout that transaction. So we are in constant communication with them and up until the close of escrow. Do you attend the closings? No, I do not attend the closings. They are. We do have one general closer. Uh, we're closing... Oh, somewhere between 60 and 75 a month. I wish I could attend the closings because that would be a great way to adopt those buyers. But time permitting, I'm just not able to attend the closings for them. But someone on your staff does. To attend the closings, no. We're here. We're a title company. It's not an attorney state. So unless it's one of our buyers that's also purchasing, the agent would accompany them to closing. But on the listing side, it's not very customary in our market for the listing agent to attend the closing. What do you do after the closing? How do you wrap it up? After the closing, we also place the phone call and an email. We leave a congratulations letter for the buyer on the counters in the property when they get there. Just a nice touch at the end, I think, to thank them for the transaction. And there's a little bit of coordination because the buyers are not able to keep the key on a HUD transaction. So we need to make sure that the agent and the buyer understands that they can have the property rekeyed in a timely manner so that we can come back by and get the key and the lockbox. And then after that, I have a few things in place where we send out a thank you letter and try to adopt those buyers because REO is not going to be around forever. So it's obviously very important to build that sphere of influence list and past clients. And we know from statistics that most realtors don't have a great follow-up when years go by. So I'd love to be the face that stays in front of that buyer when their current buyer's agent falls off. Do you have to 
coordinate any repairs on the property or is that being handled by someone else? This is one of the specifics with HUD that there are no repairs that are done on a HUD property. Uh, for the last couple of years, many of the REO entities and banks have made repairs even though they say as is, as is, as is. HUD is not that way. HUD is as is and they stick to the as is. So there are no repairs. And this is part of some of the challenges that we face during the closing process because we're also experiencing, just with the economy, really heavy vandalism in our part of the valley. And so the agent and the lender needs to know what their options are as far as if something is vandalized, since there's no repairs that are going to be made, what happens at that point? But to answer that question, no, there's no, there are no repairs. Uh, one of the special advantages that I was mentioning about FHA is that HUD will allow an escrow, and it's called insured with escrow, so as long as the repairs needed are less than $5,000, the buyer can make the repairs after closing and add the dollar amount of the repairs to their purchase price. So the buyer is paying for it. That doesn't affect the net to HUD but it is a way to allow us to continue a closing. So if we have a hose bib that goes missing, which happens unfortunately quite frequently, several times a week for the copper, the buyer can add that cost of say $200 or $250 on to the loan amount. Transaction doesn't have to cancel. Repairs not made until after closing. And so lender just continues right on with that process, no hiccup, and buyer gets to replace that right after closing. Because HUD and FHA are intertwined, these properties can be financed with FHA even though they may need repairs. Correct. Without doing a 203K. Because a two, and that's where some agents get confused and there's this buzz in the industry. No one likes a 203K because it's more difficult and it takes more work and it takes more time. So that's also an option, but that's more if you have extensive repairs or a buyer maybe that wants to do some upgrading to the house through the transaction and use that as financing to help change out carpet and paint, et cetera. The repair escrow, uh, as I said, there's no delay in that closing process. There's no kinks. It's very simple. It's exactly the same as the normal 203B FHA transaction and allows us to close without delays. You mentioned as long as the amount was under 5000 is the amount ever over 5000 and how do things proceed then? Occasionally, we do see an amount over 5000 An example would be if we had a property that's already has some repairs, and it's a repair escrow, and then if the AC is stolen during the transaction, that might push it over the $5,000 mark. Um, if you have two ACs and those both get taken, that would push you over the $5,000 mark. In the event that that happens, basically the buyer would have to change over to a 203K or they would have the right to cancel, and at that point, HUD is going to refund their earnest money. And then you'd put it back on the market. Correct. And then they change the way that it's listed. There's four types of financing for HUD properties, insured, insured with escrow. Uh, that's where you can do the traditional 203B product, FHA, or it's uninsured, uninsured with 203K eligibility. And so it would probably change over, depending on if it's over or under that $5,000 threshold, we would change the way that it's listed in the MLS to alert the agents on what eligible buyers can purchase that property. Well, let's go through that real quick. You said that the financing could either be insured, insured with escrow, uninsured, or uninsured with a 203K. What does that mean? So insured means what? So insured means basically on the HUD properties, 
there is an FHA appraisal that gets done, and that's what the list price is set at, the appraised value. If it's insured, that means the FHA appraiser has gone in and deemed that there's no repairs needed, and it will qualify for your FHA 203B with no repairs. Something also that's great about the HUD properties is that if the properties have a pool, which in Arizona we have a lot of pools, the pools are covered, or they may not be covered, but they're empty. And there's no value given on the appraisal for the pool. So what that means for the buyer is they're not going to be able to do an inspection on the pool, but they're paying for a house, getting a pool, and not really paying for the pool through the price that they're paying. So insured, because FHA, again, is HUD, allows a purchaser to purchase that property with a pool, no repairs, nothing needed, nothing additional that's going to have to happen. Uh, many REO transactions that we have right now have appraisals that are not coming in or a list of repairs that the appraisers are requesting. With an insured property, we already have the appraisal, so you don't have that worry that there's going to be some hiccup with the transaction later on and that the appraiser is not going to appraise the value or that he's going to come out with repairs that may really kill the transaction. So insured is always the favorite. Insured with escrow means that they've already deemed that there are a few repairs that are needed. It could range from 50 or or $100 all the way up to $4,999 because 5000 is our cutoff. And if it needs more than $5,000 in repairs, then it would be an uninsured property. What does uninsured mean? Uninsured just means that it cannot go FHA. So everything since HUD is FHA is geared around FHA buyers. And so that terminology basically means that it's not insurable in the eyes of HUD for an FHA loan unless they do a 203K to bring it back up to their minimum standards. What percentage of your listings, your properties, are falling into each of those categories? Let's just break it down into insured and uninsured. What percentage of the properties are uninsurable and cannot get FHA financing? The majority of our properties actually are insured. So that number is about 85% for insured properties, and then the other 15% are uninsured. Um, the great thing about HUD for owner-occupants, because we have a lot of cash buyers and owner-occupants that are getting beat out by investors, like all the government entities, there is a time period in place where it's only eligible for owner-occupants. So for the first 30 days, if the property is listed insured or insured with escrow, it's only eligible for owner-occupant buyers. If it's uninsured, because that's more likely to need more repairs and less likely an owner-occupant would make that purchase, that opens up to investors after day five. So day six, investors are free to bid on those properties. Now, a quick word from our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television, where top agents reveal exactly how they create consistent flows of home buyer and home seller leads into their practices every month. Need more leads? Hit the pause button right now. Open Google and search RealGTV. That's R-E-A-L-G dot TV. Now, back to the show. Let's go back for a minute and talk about the marketing. What does HUD expect you to do in the area of marketing? HUD wants to see diversification when it comes to your marketing. So obviously our society and all the marketing efforts seem to be geared mostly towards the web and the Internet. HUD likes to see different strategies for marketing. So some of the things that we do are 
half-page and full-page newspaper ads in the Arizona Republic. We do do a lot of website syndication, realtor.com, showcase listings. We also do e-flyers, so those blast out to agents and buyers, virtual tours. So there are several things in place that they have that are requirements. They would like to see that we have a minimum of 25 photos because people are so web sensitive now and they do a lot of that preliminary research. It's so important that people see as many photos as possible to really gain that interest on the property and give them a good idea of what the properties look like. So we do take 25 photos. We have a professional photographer that's just started doing those so that we can have a higher quality of photo and showcase our properties in the best light that we can. One of the challenges with HUD properties is they don't have utilities. So that's not always the easiest job taking pictures in the dark, but professional photographer can definitely help with that challenge, although our, our folks have gotten very good at that. Um, but we do syndication. Syndication on the Internet I think is huge because that blasts out to all the major websites, you know, Trulia, Zillow, and several of the others. And one of the other things that we do that I think separates us is we flyer properties, the 15 closest properties to a listing. And this has been a great recruiting tool for our agents as well because that can help them gain listings uh, or gain buyers. But we know just from statistics that majority of buyers can be relatives of someone that lives close to that listing or maybe a renter that lives close to that listing, people passing by sign calls. So we take it a step further and we actually flyer on that same block 15 closest properties, sometimes a little bit more, but for the most part 15 properties and giving them the preliminary information that the property has just hit the market and list price and specifics about that property. For us that's been very, a very good return for leads, buyer leads. You're doing that by door knocking, walking up to the door, knocking and chatting? Yes. Yes. We don't always catch everyone at home, but if we don't, there's a flyer. And we know neighbors are, are usually the first ones that want to know about the property. How much is it selling for? Obviously, that's a direct effect of their value. Everyone always knows someone that needs to sell a, buy or sell a house. So again, that timing thing that we talked about earlier, it's always about the right timing. If with 15 houses that you're hitting, the probability that you're going to touch one person that someone at work mentions that they want to buy, relative is looking to move, they're renting, you have a very high probability. And so I think that's why we had a major success in that form of marketing. Does HUD require that you spend a certain amount of dollars marketing each listing? They don't have a threshold or a specific dollar amount that they've given us. It's more of a silent expectation that you probably should be putting back in you know, 20 to 25% of the commission you're earning back into your marketing dollars. And that's separate from staff and other costs that you have. That's just directly from marketing. You're expected to do all these tasks now on these properties. What type of compensation are you receiving from HUD to do that? Are you receiving a commission, a percentage, a flat fee, a fee for service? How is the arrangement worked out? HUD actually pays a 3% commission unless it's under a $45,000, then it's a $1,250 flat fee. Actually, I, I apologize. They just lowered that to $1,000 flat fee for the lower price. But the majority that we sell are on the 3% commission. So you'll get paid if it successfully closes, and then you would receive a commission just like a traditional sale? Correct. What costs would you have to put up front with HUD that you would not have to put up front with a traditional sale? 
No, that's the nice piece of HUD, but that's where there's a, a dramatic shift, and I don't think a lot of agents see that because they do see that as, well, the REO agent, listing agent doesn't have to turn on utilities. You know, there's no cash for keys when we have an occupied property that we have to pay for. Uh, there are no repairs that were paid out of pocket. But because of the um, inspection tasks and the marketing efforts, you still have a high dollar amount that you're putting out. It is allotted towards the different categories than it is with Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac or another traditional REO seller. You mentioned reporting. What type of reporting do you have to do with HUD? At the end of every month, we do have to gather some statistics as far as how many assets we've been given contract to date from the beginning, first contract, um, how many properties you've sold this past month, how many are active, what your average time on the market is. We have to provide links for all of our Internet advertising and hard copies for the additional marketing that we do. How much interaction is required with HUD and the asset manager? Well, when you say the asset manager, there's not really one person on the HUD contract that is your one contact or asset manager because there are so many tasks and duties for HUD. They have a massive team at BLB Resources, and so we are in contact with them multiple times a day just in different aspects. And occasionally I am in contact with the owners of BLB resources as well just to make sure we're doing a good job touching base um, regularly, I would say, you know, once every few weeks as far as that's concerned. Uh, they're located in California, so I have flown out there on occasion also to do a face-to-face -face meeting with them, but there are no set meeting times that we're given other than some training and webinars that they provide as needed. BOP resources I'm trying to remember what you called it before. That's the M&M company? BLB Resources is the asset management company that covers all of Arizona. In different regions, there's, there can be multiple asset management companies. And so for Arizona, though, we just have BLB Resources. BLB Resources also covers several other states. And in some of those states, they have competing asset management companies. And the owners of BLB Resources actually are former HUD agents from right here in Arizona. So they have a very good understanding of the process, and they're also very competitive and driven people. And so just like people are on my heels, there's people on their heels as well to get that contract that they have. So they push us as the listing agents and brokers in order to get those average days on the market down and market those properties to the best of our ability because that makes them shine. Right? That's my job is to make them shine. That's the way that I look at it. You never really talk directly to HUD. You're talking to BOP Resources, the asset manager. Yes, yes, I'm talking with BLB, not, not HUD. You've mentioned some of these metrics that you're trying to hit, and you keep mentioning lowering the average days on the market. Is, is that a critical metric for HUD? Yes, because just like any other REO seller, every day that they have that property on their inventory, it's costing them money. So the faster they can liquidate that property, the less money they're losing. So number one, obviously we want to get a high net for the seller uh, on the sale. But number two, very close behind that, is to keep that average day on market very low. What is your current average days on the market? With my HUD properties, it's 42 days on the market. It's good, but it can always be better. I am my number one 
biggest competitor is myself. So 42 is okay, but you know, I would like to see that number closer to 30, you know, 25 to 30 days. I noticed that your production numbers have varied quite a bit over the last few years. 2009, you were at 387 closings. 2010 went down to 98. This year, year to date, you're already up to 536. Why the fluctuation? I account mostly for that change in opening my, my brokerage last year. As I mentioned, the REO accounts are specific to the broker. And so it was a pretty methodical process for me to do those things at the right time. And there was a down point where I wasn't trying to build business to leave it at the former brokerage because in my previous contract with the brokerage, they took a pretty hefty cut of every one of the commissions after I severed. So I was pretty methodical. So that's really the explanation of why there was such a downtime for last year. It was a building year for me to build back up and again, not have all the eggs in one basket, which I never have, diversified always. Um, And that's where we're growing tremendously today. Did I get that right? Have you closed 536 transactions year-to-date 2011? Yes. Yes, that's where we are year-to-date. Hopefully we'll hit 1,000. Inventory's dropped off, but hopefully we can hit 1,000 by the end of the year. It would be a great accomplishment. We're a little past the halfway mark, but for me that's still doable, so I'm still holding out hope and stepping up the marketing efforts, hopefully get get that number hit 1,000 by December 31st. Now, you're also working quite a bit with Fannie Mae. Is their process similar or different as far as what you have to do, what you're required to do for them on these assignments? Fannie Mae is a much more hands-on process as far as the actual process itself from start to finish. Uh, we have a direct hand. When we go knock on the door the first time, we don't know what we're going to get. We could find an occupied property. Hopefully we find it vacant, but with the media and just people as savvy as they are now, most people are aware of the Cash for Keys programs or relocation assistance that's given. So many people are not moved out by the time that foreclosure date comes around, which means that we have to now negotiate a move-out date for them and monetary compensation to them which as a Fannie Mae broker, you actually pay out of pocket and submit to be reimbursed. So that's an additional cost with Fannie Mae, but it's also additional time that can take, I would say probably 50% of our properties right now are occupied with no date for them to move out. So that's a little bit of delay in getting properties to the listing point, getting them liquidated for the seller. Uh, We're also very involved in the repair process. So once we do our initial BPO on the property, We have to coordinate with the Fannie Mae contractors to get the repairs made, and we're signing off on repairs, so we're QCing the contractors, make sure that the work is just as we would want it in our own personal home before we sign off on it. And that repair process, that can be lengthy, and it does take a good deal of time to coordinate bids, repair dates, flooring contractors, et cetera, uh, until we can get to that point where we can actually get the property ready to list marketing photos and such and to the marketing process. So that is much more hands-on. Um, as far as the contract is concerned, we do all of the packaging of the contract. And what I mean by that is the contracts and Fannie Mae addendums come directly to us. And there's very specific order that we have to have I's dotted and T's crossed and make sure everything is exactly the way that Fannie Mae wants that before we submit it to the asset manager for signatures. 
that can be difficult because we have a nine to ten page contract, HOA addendums, and Fannie Mae has you know nineteen page addendum that goes with that. So we have a pretty lengthy package that we have to get together between a buyer's agent and the buyer. No mistakes. That back and forth process usually is pretty timely as well. And then we get it off to them to execute the contract. And then contract to closing process is very similar as it is with HUD or another transaction. Um, again, we're facing the challenge of a lot of low appraisals or a lengthy list of repairs recently, I would say in the last 90 days or so. So that's a new challenge that we're trying to overcome and put processes in place not to have so many problems with those appraisals during the escrow. Uh, and we then see it through to closing, hopefully knocking on wood that there's no vandalism because again we are experiencing a good deal of vandalism. Uh, however, in that case, a little bit different, Fannie Mae usually will make the repair depending on what the vandalism is and or offer the buyer some sort of credit to offset the vandalism. Uh, and then closing, normal closing, again we wouldn't attend the closing as a listing broker unless it's one of our buyer's agent and we represent the buyer, in that case we would. And same process, sending out the buyers a thank you card and trying to adopt that buyer as a future client going forward. On these Fannie Mae transactions, you mentioned the Cash for Keys program. Two questions there. How long does that process typically take to negotiate and get those folks out? And number two, how much does it typically cost to get that done? The letter that we are required to leave by Fannie Mae says that the occupant has 10 days to contact us which is a little misleading because the time clock for them to be out is actually starting the day that we post that. And generally Fannie Mae likes to see them out within two weeks of the time that we post it. So that usually is somewhat blindsiding for people, although most of them know that the foreclosure has happened, they're not ready to be out within two weeks. So that process can take anywhere between two weeks. If it goes to a full eviction, you know, I've seen some of them take up to six months. Uh, in a bad case scenario, if, it, if the occupant just is not responsive, it goes all the way to court and we have to do a lockout, it can take six months. As far as cost, uh, hard cost for me, normally Fannie Mae offers between $1,500 and they'll negotiate upward from there. Um, they usually don't go over $2,100 is usually their cutoff. So the cost that we'll pay out for relocation assistance varies between $1,500 and $2,100. And you have to pay that cost out of your pocket initially? Yes. I write the check. Uh, it's made payable, which I also have to track. I have to issue 1099s for everyone that we pay out cash for keys for. So it's another accounting process or someone that has to track that for me on the bookkeeping side. Uh, and then it takes, generally it takes Fannie Mae about 90 to 120 days to reimburse. So you've got to have some cash reserves. Yes, if you're working with Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, you definitely need to have some capital to front the money for cash for keys. Um, depending on what the repair expenses are, a lot of times there are certain expenses that we're paying as the broker for repairs. And in addition to that, uh, utilities. We have to have utilities on at all of these properties. I've had eight in the last two weeks that had close to a $1,000 utility bill for whatever reason, for repairs being done or agents cranking down the air or what have you. So 
In the summer, obviously, much higher costs for utilities here in Arizona because it is so hot. Agents want to get that air turned down low after being in the car with their buyer, so there is a cost of the utilities as well. You front the money. You put those utilities in your name. Is that correct? Correct. When you sign up these agreements with Fannie, Freddie, and HUD, do you have to prove that you have reserves in order to handle these uh, expenses? They don't ask for proof in form of bank statements or anything like that. Uh, they do ask you for dollar amounts, but there is no proof of funds requirement that you have to provide. You have to front the money for repairs? Depending on what the repairs are, it depends if it's a capital, what they call a capital repair. So if they're doing brand new paint and carpet, I would not front the money for that. However, if we have a broken window, um, if we're doing a carpet cleaning, some other various, I have a list of repairs that fall under the we cover it <laughs> category. Uh, I would say that dollar amount generally ranges between $1,000 and $2,000 per property that you should have on reserve for those REO properties to make those repairs in addition to the utilities and cash for keys. If a new agent or an agent wanting to get into this side of the business were trying to plan, how much reserve, dollars reserve, should they plan for on each property? That's a trick question because it does depend on what client you're dealing with. If you have Freddie Mac, their attorney or Freddie Mac themselves pay out the cash for keys money. So with a Fannie Mae, that's going to be a little bit different. You're going to have to have a higher average that you keep. So we'll, I'll break that up in two answers. For Fannie Mae, I would say you need to have $5,000 per property on reserve. Uh, if you have another bank client like Freddie Mac or maybe one of the different entities, you can ha get away with probably 2500 to 3000 per property. Did you have to take out a line of credit or something to be prepared for these items? Initially, yes. When I did get started in REO, I did have a line of credit because it's feast or famine, right, in real estate. So to get my foot in the door, you need those closings, but it's this vicious cycle, double-edged sword, if you will. And so, yes, I did take out a line of credit to cover those initial expenses until I got an inventory built up where I could pay off a line of credit and just keep a reserve account. Fannie Mae, how are they compensating? Are they also paying a single commission at closing? Fannie Mae pays out a 2.5% commission. Uh, there are also outsourcers, which means it's a middleman, I guess, if you will, other asset management companies that have the relationship with Fannie Mae. And so they're the middleman, I guess, if you will, for the assignments. So I have Fannie Mae Direct, which means I drill directly with Fannie Mae, and then I also have Fannie Mae through outsourcers. And they recently changed the compensation with the outsourcers where it's only a 2% commission, I would guess, because the compensation to the outsourcer is coming from the 2.5% now that Fannie Mae pays. So if you have Fannie Mae through an outsourcer, you're get, getting compensated a little less, but depending on the outsourcer, some of the outsourcers will actually pay the cash for keys for you. Not all of them, but some of them. So that could be an offset to help with that cost. When you first got started, you started with Fannie Mae. Were you working with one of these outsourcers or did you go direct? I was working with outsourcers prior to having Fannie Mae Direct, which that did also give me an additional edge or competitiveness to get in because I did have somewhat of some of the knowledge that I needed on the process for Fannie Mae, although it is in my opinion, much smoother dealing with Fannie Mae Direct because you have less delays and you go straight to the source, to the asset manager instead of having the middleman outsourcer. 
uh, but it did help in getting that account as well to have that experience with the outsourcers. You've mentioned all these tasks happening. I'm sure that you're not doing this all by yourself. Let's talk about your team. Can you go through a list of who's on your team? I have an REO manager, uh, and she's basically started off as my assistant before there was REO. And so she has an intimate knowledge of the entire process and therefore capped as the REO manager. And so what she does is everything filters through her. All of my emails get copied to her, and she knows which emails she's forwarding out to the appropriate team members. Uh, she handles availability, and she also, for the most part, is doing the transaction coordination on those properties, on the Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. I treat the account separately because HUD is so specific and so different in the tasks that we have to do. HUD for me is one team almost, and then I have an REO team separate to deal with those tasks. So I have the REO manager, then I have a HUD manager, does the same things on the HUD side, answers all the availability uh, questions, challenges that we have. We get lots of calls and emails on a daily basis for that. So. She handles that portion. She also filters out the assignments for the inspection. So as we receive in the inspection requests from HUD, either as a new assignment or doing a follow-up inspection, she manages and coordinates all that with our field people that are doing those inspections. Um, on the HUD side, I have three inspectors or field people. On the REO side, I have one person that's capable of handling that inventory. Uh, I have a bookkeeper that handles not really bookkeeping needed on as much on the HUD side, so she's handling more the REO. I have an account payable person that handles all the accounting. There's a lot of invoicing and additional paperwork that we have to submit back to the banks and government entities in order to get reimbursed. And if you don't dot all the I's and cross the T's the right way, they will reject your reimbursement. You either have to resubmit and wait again another 90 to 120 days, or it may just be rejected altogether depending on the time frames. So a very key person there. I have a specific person that does HOA. We have a lot of HOAs here in Arizona, so 90% of our properties have HOAs. We have to gather statements, demand letters, etc., for the clients. So she does that as well as turning on and off utilities. I have uh, two MLS data entry people, one for HUD and one for REO. And then as far as buyer specialists are concerned, unique here because since I'm the owner of the real estate company, I use our agents as my buyer team, if you will. And so we have 29 agents in our office. We utilize all those agents for the buyer leads. 536 closings you've had year to date. Are those all seller or are those seller and buyer? We have 46 buyer sales of, from that figure. Um, much lower than I would like it to be. And we've I've put additional things in place with our buyer's agents to try to have a higher dual agency number here in the office. For me, that's a double-edged sword because you always have people scouring the MLS and they think there's some unethical behavior and impropriety going on. So I almost cringe when we have an agent that sells one of our properties, especially in a multiple offer situation, although our agents never have access to see what the other offers are. We don't give them any competitive advantage in that way. We will tell them how many offers that we have on the table, 
but that's no different than what we tell any other agent. So for me as an owner and a broker, ugh, I somewhat cringe, like I said, at having that number, although I know for my sellers it's important that we have a decent dual agency number because it means our marketing efforts are paying off. The 29 agents, they're also out there doing their own business? Yes. So we're really trying to build a brokerage where people are not on the IV, if you will, and they're able to generate their own business. But because the economy is the way it is and and real estate has been a tough, difficult business over the last several years, it is very nice for agents to be able to come in and have some type of additional help and support to get them that jump start to get some income rolling in immediately for them to go out and then spend marketing dollars and do what they need to do to generate their own business. But yes, absolutely, they are performing and getting their own business in addition to receiving the leads. On your administrative team, how are you compensating those people? Are you paying them a salary, a hourly, a commission? Uh, how are they getting paid? Depending on the position, people are compensated differently. Uh, no one is the same, actually. So with the REO and HUD managers, they are receiving a base plus a closing compensation per closing. For uh, the field people, they're getting paid per inspection. And the other team members, it depends on accounting, is a 1099 position, so I just get billed for the work that they do. Um, and then several of the other MLS data entry, et cetera, are hourly. Is your bookkeeper an accountant? She's not a CPA. She's a bookkeeper. So I have, But I have two separate people that do accounting work, clerical work. One of them is specifically submitting reimbursements and handling that portion of the accounting. The bookkeeper herself is assisting with payroll, um, kind of a checks and balances for the other person as far as receiving in and paying out bills. And she also does work for the brokerage as well. Does the bookkeeper have the authority to sign checks? The bookkeeper, we actually do most things online. And so she can initiate ACH and bill pay up to certain dollar amounts where I cap her and then additional amounts I need to approve before it will authorize a transaction. Wow, you've got quite a bit of overhead to cover each month. Uh, You've got a lot of requirements that HUD is requiring and, of course, Fannie and Freddie. I'm sure there are a lot of agents out there They have a question on their mind. They're wondering if you're profitable. Yes, at this point, we we are still profitable, uh, which is is great because the REO business is helping. It's a platform, really, for the brokerage to take off and get where we need to be. So at this point, uh, yes, we are profitable. It is a constant upkeep, so you never want to be complacent and just keep your business the same. My business, I would say my hires and the way that we do things change probably every two months. There's changes, just small changes being made here and there. Um, Someone once told me that there's always someone bigger, faster, better, stronger. I don't like that statement. So I always try to be the one that's bigger, better, faster, stronger. And for me, you just cannot be complacent with that. So you always have to know your numbers of your business and constantly implement change. You can't be afraid of change to con- to be sure that you're going to remain profitable, really. Would you mind disclosing what type of profit margin you're making as a percentage of your revenues? 
with the HUD account, even with the marketing built in, that has a higher profitability margin just because we don't have to put out – there is money that gets lost. You can have the best person that's submitting your reimbursements, but you do lose money. I talk to REO agents and they lose – I've talked to some that if you lose $10,000 a year that you don't get back, that's a really good number. Some people lose upwards you know, seventy dollars to $100,000 because they're not – submitting the paperwork correctly, and so they're just not getting reimbursed. So because of that loss factor and because of um, the downplay of doing cash for keys and some of the other things with the HUD properties, utilities, etc., that part of the staff looks a little bit different. So the profit margin there on the HUD properties is a little bit higher um, than it is on an REO. The exact number, since I have it kind of blended, I don't know a specific number that I can give you to tell you this is the exact percentage per se. I know the dollar amounts in my mind, and I have them on paper as well, but I, I couldn't give you an actual percentage. I apologize. Do you know the blended number for your whole operation? Before tax, it's about a 35% profit margin. So it's a good profit margin. So basically a third is falling to the bottom line. Exactly. It is a lot of hours. <laughs> it is a lot of hard work. I mean, you're pretty much, for what I do as the overseer of the entire process, I mean, really, you're on call. It's really hard to take a vacation. You know, you really don't have weekends for yourself, even though as an REO agent, you can say you have less availability on the weekends. There's always a property that's flooding or the police department calling you for vandalism or, you know, there's always something. There is never a dull moment in REO or with HUD. So there's not really, I have a picture of a Disney cruise sitting here above my desk because that's one of my main goals is to take my family on a Disney cruise. And for me right now, it's more about allotting the time where I'm not tied to email and cell phone uh, for that period of time because you are definitely making the sacrifices that you are going to be tied to your smartphone and you are going to be tied to your email because if an asset manager calls or emails you and you're not available, they will move on to the next person. So you definitely are on call without the prestige of being a doctor <laughs> in, in the REO world. So that portion of it, if we factored in what my – hourly rate should be, profit margin is less. But overall, the profit margin can be great as long as you're willing to make those sacrifices. You got 2,500 agents on your heels. That's right. That's right. There's no time for sleeping. How many hours do you work in a typical week? Hours that I'm working? Oh, this is a trick question because for me, really, it's hard to quantify you know, five minutes an email here, 10 minutes an email here. But overall, I probably am working 70 plus hours a week. How do you keep control of your time? What do you use to manage that? I have a schedule. I try to time block as best I can. Not always possible because, like I mentioned, REO is always changing and there's always things coming at you or people coming at you sideways. But I do try to schedule and I post my schedule. I make sure my team and my staff and the agents know what my schedule is. And if someone says, hey, are you busy? I'm very protective of my time. And sometimes instead of being nice and saying, oh, no, I'm not busy. What do you need? I will be honest and say, you know, right now is not a good time. You know, maybe I can schedule, schedule you at this XYZ time. Or do you think so-and-so could help you with that question? How are you achieving balance in your life? Balance is probably the one thing that I'm not excelling at, to be honest. Um, 
I do have four kids and a great husband, and three of the kids are in extracurricular activity. So I think the point that they do extracurricular activities forces me <laughs> to get to give me balance because it forces me to get out by a certain time just by the fact that I need to be there for their events or pick them up from school. Um, but again, schedule. It all goes back to scheduling and just doing whatever you need to do to stay on that schedule. You've obviously educated yourself to get into these arenas. How did you educate yourself? Did you just go in by the School of Hard Knocks and just start calling on those banks? Or did you read up on it somehow? How did you educate yourself? Uh, really, no, I just dove in. Um, I'm not a person that's driven by fear, and so I'm not really afraid. I don't have a fear of picking up the phone. I'm not afraid to talk to people. Um, I think I exude a certain aura of confidence. So for me, it's very easy just to pick up the phone and start calling these banks and for me, failure is not an option. So I'm very confident when I tell them, hey, if you need to get a property sold, I'm the person to do it for you. Yeah, I want to be the best of the best, and I want that image with the other agents that I work with and with my asset managers and past clients, buyers. It really does the image that I want to portray. And I think so far I've done a good job because I try to, again, push myself on my biggest competitor. So if I think I'm doing good and other people are patting me on the back saying I'm doing a good job, for me, that complacency is never there. It's never enough. It's always, okay, well, now what can I do to push myself to the next level? Do you have a business plan? I do have a business plan. Uh, something that we haven't talked about or mentioned was the fact that I have an actual coach, a real estate coach, professional coach, um, which I look at just successful people in general, whether it's professional athletes or highly successful business people. And if you talk to them and hear any interviews or biographies that they've done, most of them have a coach in some form. Obviously, professional athletes all have a coach. And so for me, early on in my career, um, I signed up for coaching with the Mike Ferry organization. And I've been in that program for all but one year of my time in real estate, so for the last seven years in coaching. And for me, that's given me a great level of accountability that in real estate we don't have. So for me, coaching has definitely been very strong in where I am today. It's played a, a major role. Have you had the same individual as your coach during this entire time? No, actually, I have not had the same individual, and I'm thankful for that because, again, complacency sets in if you get comfortable with one particular person. So I'm actually on my third coach, uh, partly because there was changes within the company and partly because I'm just at a different place in my business. So the initial coach I had is not the best fit for where I'm at today. So the coach I have now is a former broker owner of a company and can relate to some of those challenges that I'm experiencing on that part of the business. Uh, how often do you speak with your coach? I talk to my coach 30 minutes once a week, and then their organization also has uh, two events that they put on per year in addition to some other workshops that go on sporadically throughout the year as well. Anything else you think we should know about having a coach in this profession? Well, I hear a lot because it, it comes not at a low cost. It's $1,000 a month to sign up for a coach. And when I signed up for a coach, I really didn't have $1,000 a month to pay. I put it on a credit card, and it's a 12-month contract that you sign. But 
again, failure is not an option. So for me, that was a monetary push. Hey, if I have to get it done, and now I'm going to have to find a way to pay this you know, new $1,000 bill a month, what am I going to have to do? I'm going to have to push myself that much harder. And so for me, just that accountability alone, in addition to the person or the coach, uh, was a good driver. And so I think again, a mindset has really taught me to have a strong mindset. And I think that's where some people shortchange themselves because there's a lot of excuses that you can make. Oh, I can't afford it or not now or I'll do it next week or I'll do it after I do this closing. And at some point, you just have to draw the line in the sand, make a jump to, to make a commitment to your business because we are all business people as real estate agents and exercise some blind faith and go for it. Do you have any affiliate businesses? Do you own a title company or a mortgage company? No, I do not have any separate businesses. Really, I have two businesses in, in the fact that I have a brokerage and we're trying to grow and run the brokerage in addition to the REO and HUD business. So I have those two businesses and no additional affiliates at this time. What drives you? For me, my family drives me. As I sit here and talk to you, I'm looking at my computer screen and it has a picture of our family. So my husband, myself, and our four kids. And for me, it's really providing a great life for them, being able to not really have many wants, um, being able to take great family vacations, and really doing my affirmations, because I am a big proponent of affirmations, and setting goals and putting photos and having those goals in front of you constantly to remind you, hey, why are you doing this every day? If someone screams at you on the phone, right? hang up, look at what's your driver, and say, okay, that negativity is going to be pushed aside and I'm just going to continue pushing through my day because this is why. At the end of the day, I get to see my family and, I mean, really that's what it's all about. Why are you successful? I'm successful because I'm driven. I am such a competitive person. I don't know how more passionately I can say that. I'm just so competitive. I think I've said it a couple of times during the interview that I just do not like to be number two. I always want to be number one. And I don't want to be on anyone's heels. I want people to be on my heels. So, again, I'm just constantly brainstorming and thinking of new ways and thinking big really is is probably, if I had to answer that with one simple statement, I would say I think big and then I act on it. I don't have that fear of, well, maybe this isn't going to work. You can never know unless you're willing to take some type of risk. And the more I talk to people, I find out that there's not a lot of risk takers in life. And so you can't be careless with your risks, but at the same time, you do have to have some confidence and faith in yourself and that you can make things happen and just think big and go for it. Have you ever tried to analyze why you are so driven? No, not nothing short of you know taking maybe a personality test or the DISC test. Um, I know I'm a very high D and I on there, which means high driven and influential, which means I do like to talk to people. I'm very personable combined with just being driven. I'm not sure. I think that's just always been, that's my personality. That's my genetic makeup. I don't think that's anything that I've learned. That's just the way I've been as a small child, if you hear stories from my parents and things that I've done. I've always just been a driven person. Do you invest in real estate? I do. Uh, My husband and I do own several rental properties and are looking to pick up several more with the values being so low. 
uh, I'm restricted from purchasing my own properties and or any HUD properties as a HUD, HUD broker. So it does somewhat limit the pool because obviously the first houses I see are my own listings, but I'm restricted from purchasing those. So um, we do have a few plans in place though to invest in real estate because I think it is one of the best and strongest places to invest your money. And we do have uh, rentals currently that we have with cash flow. If you were to advise a brand new agent just getting in the business, what would you tell them to do first? Get some sales training. I think one of the big things in real estate is that we lack sales training. We're taught how to write a contract or we're taught about meets and bounds and some things that we need and some things that we don't. But there's no direct sales training that we're given as agents. So I would tell them to invest in some type of sales training, whether it be with a brokerage or with some separate curriculum somewhere, but to get specific sales training so that they don't pick up bad habits and they start their business the right way. And if you can afford it, pick up a coach also. Is there anything you'd like to talk about that we haven't addressed? Because my recent business is so REO-focused, we haven't discussed the importance of listing presentations or canned scripts, but I am very big on being prepared when you go out on your presentations, whether it's a buyer presentation or a listing presentation, and really rehearsing what you're going to say. I think so many times as agents we go out and we try to just fumble through it, and that's exactly what happens. We fumble through it. And if we're lucky, we get the listing at the end because maybe we hit it off somehow with the buyer or seller. But really we need to be more focused on having a CAM presentation and knowing that backward and forward and really just presenting a professional appearance and attitude as real estate agents. I hear that in Arizona all the time. Well, it's hot here, so we can't dress professionally. But you would be surprised. The impression, obviously, that you make on someone, the first impression is the most important impression. So I think if we go in with a strong presentation and a professional appearance, that we automatically just propelled ourselves so much further ahead from our competition just by doing those simple things. Do you have any advice for someone who would like to get into the REO or HUD Fannie Freddie arena? There's two strong pieces of advice I would give. I would definitely say if you haven't learned how to do a BPO, that's number one. You hear that time and time again, and I get asked that question, does doing BPOs, does that really help you get the business? And I would say absolutely. If you talk to agents, I think part of the problem in getting listings sometimes is because we can't stick to what we really believe the value of the property is because of our lack of ability to do a really good CMA or BPO. And there's so many great learning tools on the internet, whether it be manuals or classes. You can take too many, so you don't want to be you want to be careful about overspending on all those BPO classes and manuals. But you have to have a strong knowledge of that because that is going to be your resume. If you are just doing BPOs, I've heard it time and time again from asset managers, if you're doing a second opinion BPO, which means most of my listings, I do a BPO and there's another agent out there somewhere doing a second opinion BPO validating my value or discounting my value. If their BPO is stronger, it has more comments, it's more uh, closely related to the value of the appraisal, it makes more sense, they catch a repair I didn't catch, etc. The asset manager remembers that. They hang on to those names and the next time they get irritated with one of their listing agents or brokers, that's going to be one of the first people they call. So that is definitely by far the number one thing you can do to get your foot in the door in addition to calling and prospecting 
once they start recognizing your name from the BPOs. The second thing I would say is try to find a listing agent that you can co-list with. Obviously you have to have a little bit of knowledge about the REO process and be strong in your people skills and organizational skills in order to get that type of position. But that right-hand man, so to speak, and being a co-lister where you're taking on some of the responsibilities can be a key foot to propel you into getting your own REO business also. Did you participate in co-listing? I have had some co-listers over time. I never was a co-lister for someone else. I've had a few co-listers, and they haven't worked out for me. I will tell you I'm one of the few agents actually that don't have more of a co-listing system and have actual team members. For me, I've just utilized the strengths uh, and stayed away from the weaknesses of my team members to put them in the right fit for their position. But I do see highly successful REO agents that are using co-listers and they work very effectively. And it's something I constantly revisit because it would free up more of my time in putting that responsibility with a co-lister. So it's never something that I shun and completely close the door on. And there's a lot of opportunity out there for co-listers. Is there anything else you'd like to leave our members with before we end our call? Just keep a strong mindset because at the end of the day, you have to be your biggest cheerleader. You have to be the person that picks yourself back up, whether it's after you know a bad phone call or a bad day or a bad transaction. Whatever it may be, a mindset will get you extremely far in this business and in life for that matter. So as long as you have a really strong and positive mindset constantly, good things will come and success will happen. Well, Corinne, good things have come your way. You made it so. Your incredible confidence and competitive spirit have made you a success. You think big and you take action. You are your own biggest competitor and failure is not an option. You have proven you are the best of the best. Thank you again for being our top agent of the month. If you like the show and want to know when the next one's coming out, click the subscribe button on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you want to hear more episodes like this, give the show a five-star review and write a quick comment. I read them all, and it motivates me to keep going and share the top agent success stories with you. Thanks. If you're looking for more ways to generate leads, check out our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television, and their giant database library of video trainings where top agents reveal, demonstrate, and discuss their best lead generation methods. Visit RealGTV, R-E-A-L-G dot TV. If you're low on funds or just want to get the maximum leverage, check out my masterclass webinar titled Top 5 Free Lead Sources for Real Estate Agents. Learn more at FreeLeadTime.com. That's FreeLeadTime.com. Oh, and if you have a real estate friend who needs some inspiration, tell them about the Success Calls podcast. And don't you forget to subscribe right now to hear all the great top agent ideas. Keep moving forward. You've been listening to the Mastermind Agent Interview of the Month Club, where top agents, rising agents, team members, and guests from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the club interviews at www.mastermindagent.com.